by the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the days. Didn't need no welfare state. Rest in peace to one of the best to ever do it, Norman Lear. Due to some language in this episode, listener discretion is advised. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 435, submission number 488. That's my line. That's my line aired on CBS from August 9th, 1980 to December of 1981. For an undetermined amount of episodes. Now, I should let you know, in the chronology of the podcast, it is between the David Letterman show, which we covered back in episode 68, and To Tell the Truth, 80, which we covered back in episode 139. David Letterman show premiered on June 23rd of 1980. To Tell the Truth, 80 premiered on September 8th, 1980. And this premiered in August of 1980. And unfortunately, I cannot tell you how many crock blocks this episode lasts because per the extent of our research, there are at least two episodes that exist, but we can't find listings for all the other ones. Well, we can just determine, hey, it lasted a year and a half. It probably lasted at least one crock block. All right, Johnny. Let's hear it. Oh, I can go now? Yes. Oh, all right. Wait, you're just going to play a recording, right? Yes. Yes. From Television City in Hollywood, your feet fascinating and funny ways America makes a living on Fast My Life. This man has only a 
a fourth grade education, yet he has taken an old car, a bicycle pump, and baby buggy, and built his own airplane. He's a wacky inventor. That's his line. This man is banned from almost every casino in Vegas because he's won over a million dollars at blackjack. Tonight, he'll risk $25,000 of his own money in a high-stakes blackjack game. He's a professional gambler. That's his line. This man is teaching these students how to throw punches, fall off horses, and leap off buildings. Tonight, he'll give our own Carrie Millerick a crash course in how to be a stuntman. He's a Hollywood stunt school instructor. That's his line. You will meet these people and more tonight on That's My Line, starring Bob Barker. Good evening. Welcome to That's My Line. Before we get started, we should let everybody know that this episode was plotted well in advance of the events of late August of earlier this year. This was to be released on the day before Bob Barker would have turned 100. Sadly, he died after living quite the full life at the age of 99 back in August. So not only is this one of our centennial episodes, it will serve as one of our memorial episodes. And this is actually quite an interesting one because it's one of our episodes that sort of meets where two stories collide. The first story is an actor strike in 1980. The 1980 actor strike between July and October of 1980 involved roughly 67,000 workers from the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. This was before the two guilds merged. It was caused by a breakdown in labor contract negotiations between those two unions negotiating for a joint contract and representatives of film studios, television networks, and other independent producers, with the primary point of contention regarded as residuals from home media, such as video cassettes and pay television. It was the longest actor strike to that time. Of course, you know, that record has since been broken. On the other hand, we have sort of the birth of user-generated reality television. And by that, I mean we have to go back to 1979. Before we talk about the show we're talking about today, we have to talk about that show. And that show happens to be a show that was centered around real people. It aired on NBC from 1979 to 1984, and it was called Real People. But also, on ABC, you had a show of people doing incredible things that were so absolutely incredible. It was so amazing. 
And that show, of course, was called. That's incredible. They weren't necessarily new ideas, these two shows. Because if you remember, back in the golden age of television, there was a show called You Asked For It, where viewers would ask to see stuff from somewhere. And, well, the producers are only too happy to oblige. It was cheap, easy, readily made television. And because of the actor strike, it made a bit of a comeback in the 80s. With real people on NBC, and that's incredible on ABC, CBS, they had nothing. But they weren't about to let that stop them from trying this whole user-generated content. So they decided to go back to the well for something that was similar to, but not really, an old format that pretty much put them on the map. And that would be a panel show called What's My Line? The brainchild of Mark Goodson, Bill Todman, and Gil Fates, What's My Line? originally ran from 1950 to 1967, which used celebrity panelists to question contestants on what their odd line of work is. The majority of the contestants were general public. However, there was one weekly celebrity mystery guest for which the panelists were blindfolded. That formula landed the show on many a list of the longest-running primetime network television game shows and one of the longest-running television formats in all of television history. So, CBS decided to team up with the creative forces of Mark Goodson, Bill Todman, and, of course, Mark's son, Jonathan, who would be pretty much overseeing the Goodson-Todman empire at this time, to bring the show back with a few changes. First of all, no panel. Second of all, no game. Third of all, no celebrities. And fourth of all, we need to change the title. And so they came up with That's My Line. Like Johnny said in the open, That's My Line was a deep dive of sorts into the wild, wacky, and often unique ways that America makes a living. For example, on the one whole episode that is available on YouTube, we have, amongst other people, a cadre of inventors, a celebrity lookalike agent, a professional gambler, and a Hollywood stunt school instructor. Now, wait a minute. An agent to celebrity lookalikes? Now, is he a lookalike of a Hollywood agent? No, he was as legit an agent of Hollywood as one would look like. Who would be like the most famous Hollywood agent in 1980? Was Mike Ovitz an agent back in 1980? Probably. But then again, I've never seen what he looks like. You didn't see him in like the the uh the late shift when he was like played by like uh what's his face? Treat Williams? 
I don't remember that far back. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. Okay, Mike Ovitz was working at CAA back in the mid-70s. There you go. So he was indeed working. We have the format in place. That's incredible. Real people, they set the standard. We'll get to all of this weird stuff in a moment because I did my research. You helped. Mike is helping. But for this sort of show, you need somebody dynamic, who can work on the fly, who's energetic, who has great stage presence. And because this is a summer replacement show, it would help immensely if he's already on the take. Enter Bob Barker, who by now is entering his ninth season as host of The Price is Right. Remember when that was such a big deal of like a show on a network was on for like nine years and be like, wow, nine years. Man, that's a long time. I doubt yeah. it's going to go much further than that. Yeah, it's not going to go much further. I mean, who's going to watch this show for more than nine years? Aiding him would be L.A.-based newscasters Suzanne Childs and T.U. Leak and producer Carrie Millerick, who, among other things, would actually go out into the field and be a human guinea pig. One of his uh, assignments for That's My Line would be to cover a Hollywood stunt school run by legendary stunt artist Kim Kahena. I love this list of credits that you've shown me on the IMDb page here. Soylent Green, The Six Million Dollar Man, Airport 1975, Earthquake, The Apple Dumpling Gang, Quincy M.E., Smokey and the Bandit, Smokey and the Bandit 2. Did he do Smokey and the Bandit Port 3? No. Oh, damn it. That's probably why it sucked so much, aside from Burt Reynolds not being in it. I didn't even know there was a Smokey in the Bandit 3 until you just brought it up. Oh, Smokey is the Bandit in Port 3. Excuse me? Yes, Jackie Gleason is the Bandit in Port 3. But hold on a second. He did the stunts for Passenger 57 with mm-hmm. Wesley Snipes and Matinee with John Goodman. I gotta say, very underrated movie, Matinee. And also... And this is where I would remember him. He was the stunt director and stunt coordinator for Nickelodeon Guts. Do, do, do you have it? Good. Okay, so let's note, we didn't have Mike here for the beginning of the show. Technical difficulties, people. But Mike, you're back here. So you have information about how the show came about. Well, I have capsules for what was on each show. Not necessarily how it came about. From what I've seen and read, it came about because basically the other two networks outside of ABC wanted something like that's incredible. So that's why NBC had real people. That's why CBS tried this. And well, real people ran for about three, four seasons till 84. And that's incredible, Ran. I want to say to like 86 or 87. Well, I think it got canceled, but then remember they revived it as 
incredible Sunday for like two seasons. The big thing is that the other two networks, they had something in that really early reality genre that lasted more than two seasons, more than essentially a three-week series in summer of 1980 and then briefly in 1981. Now, hold on, Mike. Do you know who they brought back for Incredible Sunday? I do, and I don't know if I should actually acknowledge this because I know exactly what you're going to say. They brought back uh, they brought back Kathy Lee Crosby. I know. No, they didn't. They didn't bring back Kathy Lee Crosby. You know who they brought back? Fran Tarkenton. No. One more time, Mike. This is like Beetlejuice. If I say it a third time, it's it's just get it out of your system. Davidson. Okay. I just love and people that uh, listening to this can't see this. Greg like put his arms up like he's flexing when he does it. John Davidson. <laughs> I was doing the Hulk flex, like, oh Davidson. And it should be noted, and this comes from Mark Summers' podcast. He impersonated uh Shadow Stevens on Double Dare and uh and on Hollywood Squares, and Shadow Stevens did not like it at all. He did not like it to the point that he still doesn't talk to Mark Summers to this day. He's that pissed. So, Greg, you just pissed off Shadow Stevens. Good job, buddy. Oh, well, maybe it's a good thing we didn't hire him to do Fulton County Squares. (laughs) All I will say is I really loved your federated commercials. Fulton County Squares. Oh, that's a callback to about three, four months ago. Now, the capsules, you have those? I I have most of the episodes from what I can see. I do have what appears to be the capsules for the three weeks in 1980 that it aired, and also six episodes from season two in 1981. So maybe there's nine episodes. But there's definitely three for season one. The first episode aired on, well, you guys know, the, you said the premiere date, right? August 11th, 1980. Well, it says August 9th on Wiki. In my capsule, it lists That's My Line as a limited comedy hyphen variety series dealing with people in strange and amusing occupations. They give your host, we know who's hosting. They give your reporters, who I'm sure Chico and Greg have mentioned. In this first episode, features include a man who arranges for people's fantasies to come true, a rattlesnake tracker, and a professor who experiments with jogging pigs. Mike, I actually have a clip from that premiere episode. Oh, please say it's the jogging pigs. It's not the jogging pigs. No. You mentioned a fantasy broker or a fantasy merchant? Yeah, in the listing it says... A man who arranges for people's fantasies to come true. Oh, wait, that was just Peter Marshall and fantasy about uh, two years later. Oh, you're funny. I'm not wrong, though. It's a story inspired by that story, the story of the fantasy merchant. And it involves a man who graduated from San Francisco State College with a degree in television who would have a legendary career for himself. Are you ready? For Roger Dobkowitz. Now I'd like 
to introduce a gentleman who lived out his own fantasy. Here is Mr. Roger Dobkowitz. Howdy, Roger. Have a seat, won't you please? Roger here is a friend of mine. Roger works with me on The Price is Right, and he's always impressed me as being a bright, uh, well-adjusted young man. Where'd you go to college? San Francisco State University. What'd you study? I have a master's degree in television. You have a degree in television, and you're working in television. Right. You're happily married. Yes. I mean, you were a week or so ago. Yes, I still am. You still are. And yet, you have a fantasy. What is this fantasy? I've always wanted to be a professional prize fighter. A professional prize fighter. This intellectual-looking young man has always wanted to be a prize fighter. Now, why do you suppose you have this fantasy, Roger? Well, my father had been a prize fighter at one time. And when you were a little boy, you admired your father. I admired him. And very when much. you grew up, you thought, I want to be like my dad. Right. Did you ever do any boxing? In high school, I took a course in boxing. Good for you. How'd you do? I flunked. <laughs> he flunked. <laughs> Why did you flunk the course? I didn't show up for the fight. My friend Roger didn't show up for the fight. But thanks to fantasy, Roger is going to be given a second chance to make his dream come true. We'll be back to see Roger live out his fantasy with a film of his heroic fight against a mean, nasty opponent, Bad Blood Barton, right after this match. Wait. Roger's going to get a second chance? Roger is going to get a second chance. No, don't don't feed him because you know what Greg's going to do. What am I going to do, Mike? I don't know. Tell us. He's probably going to consult St. Peter to give him a second chance. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay, I was close there. I, I thought you were going to break into song if you had a second chance. We're just going to bypass the rest of the interview and go right into the film of Roger Dobkowitz in Las Vegas getting ready for a big fight against Bad Blood Barton. And let me tell you something, guys. He's one tough cookie. Greatest names have fought there. Some of them are boxers, too. <laughs> Killer Duff, which is name up in lights. They don't have my name up in lights here at CBS. <laughs> and look at that hand. He hasn't even landed a punch yet. Now, look, when you go out there, I want you jabbing, jabbing, you're moving, you left all the time. Keep it. Yeah, moving. I want you to keep moving. I want you to jab. He has everything. Manager, trainer. Everything except courage. Look at that face. Ooh, look at that opponent. Man, he's bigger than Roger. He says you're ready, but I wonder, this is not going to be an easy fight. And you know, I think Roger knows it. Look at that face. <laughs> Look at that face. You know, that, that looks like the real thing. That looks like the real thing. That was just what I needed to make me want to see this fight. Is your father watching tonight? Oh, he better be. I'll bet he wants to see the fight. You're ready, aren't you? I am. Audience, you want to see the fight? You want to see the fight? Let's see that fight. We want the fight. We want the fight. It's a full house. Here's our hero, 
They're not leading him into the ring. They're pushing him into the ring. And he still has his glasses on. I hope he remembers to take those off. Open the ropes up for him. And here he is in the ring. Over in his corner. Ring announcer. This is your main event. Introducing the challenger, wearing black trunks, weighing in at 195 pounds, the menace from Massachusetts, Bad Blood Barton. 195 pounds, that's a lot of bad blood. And introducing, introducing the contender, wearing lavender trunks. Lavender? Weighing in at 165 pounds, from Highland Park, California, making his first professional appearance in the ring, a great American, Killer Roger Dubkovich. Not much. He looks pretty good. Now let's listen to the referee. Oh, don't forget protect yourselves at all times. No low blows, no holes behind the head. If you knock your opponent down, I want you You know what this really needs, guys? the music from punch out during the fight well speaking of the music the background cues the one that was used before this segment but also when they first introduced roger going to vegas they sounded like they came from super trainer chain reaction there's a reason for that and i think you have it i, I think i do too but uh i didn't connect the dots until right now i'm surprised that uh that Bob Cobert did the music for a Goodson Todman show. I don't think he ever did that before. No, I don't think so either. At least not that I can remember. Bob Cobert usually works with Bob Stewart. Okay, fair enough then. Good observation by all of us then. Now let's see Roger get his butt kicked. Sorry, I didn't want to spoil it. I'm just going to say on the record, I've never seen this, but there's a 30-pound difference. He's going to get hammered. I took one look at Roger's face. That's a face that says, man, you're going to catch these hands. Well, let's see what happens. Roger knocks him down. He better go back to Highland Park. So oh, good. They remember their glasses. They got them off. Now he can't see. Here's the bell. Here they come out to the center of the ring. Bad blood is feeling him out. And Roger looks as if he'd like to get out. This is Valerie. This is Roger's wife. Wondering what she'll wear at the funeral. <laughs> Incidentally, this referee is Davy Pearl. He's one of the best in the business. He did the thriller from Manila. He's seen a lot of fights, but he's never seen anything like this. And look at this. He doesn't know whether he's a flamenco dancer or doing the Ali shuffle. Hey, look at that head fly back. He landed a good right there. He breaks up the flinches by slapping their wrists. Another couple left. His left is not good. And his right is worse. And there's the end of the first round. Now let's see if we can hear what they tell Roger. Get in there. Keep your left up. Don't worry about a thing. He never touched you once. Go in there and wipe him out. This is your own. I think Roger was trying to get out. He ran the wrong way. 
Roger acts as if he means business this round. Davy Pearl breaks him up. Look at that wind-up. He's down. Bad blood is down. He's trying to get out. Davy Pearl is counting over him. He can't make it, can he? He's out. Roger wins. Valerie loves it. Roger is the greatest. Is it just me, or did Roger Dopkowitz look like a real-life version of Glass Joe in the ring? Yeah. Since, since Greg mentioned Punch-Out earlier... That's I was thinking more Don Flamenco, but yeah. Well, he did the little dancing and whatnot, but I'm just talking about the, the, the physique, just being a scrawny little warp, for lack of a better word. This was the sort of thing that was staged based on a story that they had, because... For all intents and purposes, this is the pilot, and everybody liked it enough to warrant another season, as short as it is. And uh, by the way, you have the second episode? Again, I have all three episodes from that summer 1980 trial, plus six for uh, the season two. So uh, the second episode, a visit to Beverly Hills' most expensive clothing store, the Ballet Trocadero, an all-male troupe, and a man who milks venom from tarantulas and scorpions. I am happy to report that I have no clips for any of those. Good, then I'll just go to the third episode. Segments include a Chicago butcher who supplies exotic meats, a man who's the world's fastest typist, a woman who teaches babies as young as seven weeks old to swim, a banjo band, a woman who custom designs pet clothes, a girl rodeo clown, and a man who trains tigers. 40 years before Tiger King. Which lasted a crackbox of episodes, by the way. If you imagine if this show lasted 40 years, we probably would have gotten a profile on that bitch Carol Baskin and have she fed her husband to the tigers. Allegedly. No, there's no allegedly, Chico. She definitely fed her husband to the tigers. I'm agreeing with Greg here. What else we got, Mike? Okay, now for season two, and the premiere date for season two that I have is February 13th of 1981. Features include a preteen news director slash anchorman, a man who repairs Mount Rushmore, a woman who runs a mother's milk bank, and a macho male beefcake model. Clearly not Roger Dopkowitz. And clearly not Brutus the Barber beefcake. Or Rick the Model Martell. Now you see, that's a deep cut, Rick the Model Martell. I, hey, I can hang. I need to get his Hasbro eventually one day. I can't necessarily guarantee I have episodes in order or if I have all the episodes. This might be episode two. It might be episode three of the second season. Uh, segments uh, include a man who dives for lost golf balls, a lingerie party for ladies only. Woo! And the world's greatest butler. Presumably the next episode, which I'm going to assume is three, taking a look at the dates, uh, episode three of season two. A photographer whose only models are pigs. A seeing eye dog for a blind dog. 
and a grandmother who is an army drill instructor. Now it gets a little weird because the next capsule I have is for April of 1981. I don't know if it went on hiatus or what have you. It may have gone on hiatus because your sweeps would have been February of 1981. So maybe it just uh, took March off due to the sweeps from the previous month. In this episode, we have a persuasive policeman who is hostage specialist, a child psychologist who helps children overcome their fear of surgery, the losingest coach in basketball, three women who run a boarding house for 140 cats, a class for people with tin ears who want to learn how to sing, and a man who finds missing heirs. And then a week later, April 10th of 1981, a woman who arranges bicycle weddings, an unusual homemade airplane, a super gambler who is banned from almost every gambling casino in Las Vegas, a Hollywood agent who handles clients who look like famous people, and uh, the painful job of the Hollywood stuntman. I thought I had more episode capsules because I remember going through this, and admittedly, if Chico and Greg didn't mention it, I had some major microphone issues uh, for some reason. Zoom wouldn't uh, recognize my microphone, so I had to do uninstalling, reinstalling, downloading drivers, and all sorts of fun stuff. I thought I saw the capsule regarding maybe the most popular segment in That's My Line History. Well, we'll get to that. There's actually another Orphan segment, and it has to do with the life of a Hollywood voice actor. But not just any Hollywood voice actor. The man of a thousand voices himself. Of Hollywood's most famous movie stars. Listen to voice number one here. Oh, suffer and suck a fish. We like to check that bird, I'll swallow them whole. Sylvester Cat, one of your favorites, I know. That's just one. Listen to number two here. Oh, I thought I thought a bully jam. I did see a bully jam. There you are. Oh, Tweety Bird. Tweety Bird. Now here's number three. I'm a real Westerner. Where, where, where can I find my gumball? Yeah, Yosemite Sam. That's who it is. And not only that, our next guest earns his living bringing all those characters to life. That's his line. Say hello to Mel Blanc. I think you can tell from the response of that audience, they love those voices, three of their favorites, but you've done so many, and I'd like to ask you to do a few more. Oh, I'd love to. For instance, the Maxwell on the old Jack Benny show. How, how did that all start? Well, you know, uh, the sound effects men were supposed to play the sound of a motor on a record. Uh-huh. And I saw, just before the cue, I saw they didn't have the electric plug put in the socket. Yes. And it came to the cue, and I jumped up to the microphone, and I made like a Maxwell, like this. <laughs> His favorite automobiles of all time. And the parrot, Jack Benny's parrot. Oh, his parrot couldn't come in on cue. So uh, he asked me if I could do it. I said, uh, <laughs> That's just a very brief synop of Mel Blank's storied career. But you know who's even, well, I'm not, not better than Mel Blank. You know who's just as good as Mel Blank? 
Don't say Michael Winslow. He's not. So who's as good as Mel Blank? You can't just like dangle the carrot in front of us. Well, let's go to the audience because he's actually sitting in the audience right now. Stand up here, please. Now, for him, how about uh, Bugs Bunny? Me. What's up, Doc? Me. What's up, Doc? That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Mel, I think I have a hot one here. <laughs> Sounds good. It does. How about a little Daffy Duck? Well, certainly you are despicable. <laughs> Suffering succotash. Certainly I can sound like Daffy Duck. You're despicable. <laughs> well, that's marvelous. What's your name? I'm uh, Noel Blank. Noel Blank, Mel Son. Come on, let's join your dad up there, Noel. Noel has been working on this a spell, we can tell. He does them beautifully, Mel. He really does them well. How long have you been working with him? Oh, uh, he used to come to me when I was a kid, when he was a kid. <laughs> Don't make me that old. Now, wait a minute, I liked your first story better, yeah. Mel. <laughs> And uh, I'd be fixing, uh, we have an antique watch collection between us. Yes. And uh, I'd be fixing one of my antique watches, and I'd say, hey, this thing certainly is old, don't you think so? And I'd say, yes, it's a mainspring, isn't it? And and I'd say it's the wettest story I've heard tonight, <laughs> since I came out here tonight. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I said we got a lot of rusty watches with that. <laughs> I bet you did. I'll bet you did. How old were you when you first started doing voices? Oh, about four years old. I'd bring a Bugs Bunny comic book in and sit on his knee, and he would uh, read them to me in the different voices I'd try to copy him. Sure. Has he mastered them all? Yes, he's done almost everything except uh, Yosemite Sam is a little gravelly on his voice. <laughs> Yosemite Sam is real down here, every real time, tough. Every time I try that, my vocal cords end up on the wall somewhere. <laughs> you know, but it's interesting because he can do that so well and for so long a time. Didn't you have, uh, I think you had your voice box x-rayed once. Right. He had his voice box x-rayed. And the doctor told him that his vocal cords were as strong as the great Caruso. That he had only seen another pair of vocal cords like Mel's. Of course, I can't sing like Caruso, but... Uh... <laughs> I already had a spot planned for next week, have him back. Well, this has just been a marvelous visit. I want to thank you for all of the happiness you've brought us, Mel, and Noel will be watching for you in the future. But before you go, do you two have any final words for us? Yes. That's all, folks. Before we get into the main event, as it were, you could see why Bob Barker was chosen to be this sort of MC for this show. I mean, he ticks all the boxes. He can improvise. He can interact with the audience. He basically took everything he learned from a storied career in both radio and television up to this point and applied it to something that he's never done before. I don't think he's ever done a show like this before, but he knows, hey, I'm just the conduit. The guests are the stars. But bring on the main event, please. Oh, if you've never seen this, find it. It is brilliant. On one episode, this is the most famous clip from That's My Line and perhaps the lasting legacy of this show. We have a professional debunker 
Pendulette before Pendulette was Pendulette in the amazing James Randi, uh, magician, mentalist, professional skeptic. He's in one side. On the other side, we have, I'll just let Mr. Barker explain it. And I should note, before I play this clip, this is actually from a YouTube clip that features James Randi breaking down the clip as an audience is watching it. So we're basically seeing a clip inside a clip inside a clip. That's my line. Tonight on this stage, you are going to meet a man who claims he can move physical objects using only the powers of his mind. Line featured the world-famous magician, the amazing Randy. Well, we invited him back tonight for a very special reason. Here he is, the amazing Randy. You have been touring our country, performing as a magician, but you have also been debunking psychics, haven't you? I have indeed. Would you explain to our audience why you devote so much time to this crusade of yours? Well, I'll tell you, Bob, I feel it's a very serious matter to be particularly raising a younger generation who are being led to believe by some incompetent and uh, not very bright, in some cases, magicians and uh, scientists at the same time that there are such things as psychic powers. I've looked for it for a long time now, and I have not found anything in 35 years. And I think that particularly a younger generation being told that these things are real will not be raised in such a way that they can deal with a rational, logical, real world. And you have offered $10,000 to anyone who can perform a psychic feat. I have indeed, and I carry the check with me. I hope you have the check with you tonight, because we have a young man who claims to be able to move objects with his mind. Mm -hmm. What I would like to have you do is to go backstage and watch carefully as I ask this young man to demonstrate his psychic powers. Very well, I will. Make yourself comfortable in front of a monitor. Thank you. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a very interesting young man. He is only 21 years old. He's from Salt Lake City, and he's the founder of the Institute of Shaolin Gung Fu, and the subject of much controversy. Welcome, James Heydrich. This guy looks so fucking ridiculous here. Obviously, we're dealing with a man who has a Dorothy Hamill haircut, who is wearing some very frilly silk pajamas, and he is the founder of an institute of Shaolin Gong Fu in Salt Lake City. And he claims he can move things with his mind, like pencils and phone book pages? Wait a minute. That's two tricks. You know what that means? What's that? That means he has one more trick than that fucking fraud, Yuri Geller. I was waiting for that. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh, Craig, you played that perfectly. I was anticipating that for so long. But you probably want to see this guy in action, don't you? Just psychic powers. Very well. Here's a pencil, James. Show us. He's just leaving it on the uh, table halfway. Nice mustache, by the way. There's an inset close up of the pencil. I see this and I really think of Ment. Uh, what was his name? Mentok the Mind Taker from uh, Harvey Bourbon. <laughs> you guys talked about his hair. What about that mustache? Oh my gosh! It rotated. Now, let me just say. That is more impressive than bending a fucking spoon. <laughs> but wait till you see what he could do with a phone book. And for you kids listening, a phone book is a book literally full of phone numbers. Wait a minute, Chico. Are you telling me that there was a time before you could Google any number? Yes. <sighs> Dramatic. <laughs> I love his facials here. Yeah. Oh, I see that I see he's on the plumbing pages. That's good to know. <laughs> okay, let's get it. I'll get it. Okay. <laughs> False alarm, here we go. He had a running start and the force of his hand pushed the page. The the the, the air coming from his hand pushed the page. That's what I'm saying. I know I'm wrong, but that's what I'm gonna stand by. We've seen him move. A pencil. You've also seen him move a phone book page so he could move things with his mind as long as they're incredibly lightweight. So he could probably move Roger Dobkowitz. You know what he can't move? A damn razor to shave off that fucking ugly mustache. <laughs> yep. Oh, that mustache is shit. This clip features a breakdown from Randy himself. You must understand that when he was making that page move, he knew he was under the gun. He was being observed carefully. He would not wear a microphone. He wanted the overhead microphone, the boom microphone, to follow him around, pick up any sounds. With the microphone such as this around his neck, his gimmick might have been given away immediately. The point is, it took them about 25 minutes or so to get him to turn that page. 
So it's all condensed. You'll even notice that the book shifts position rather dramatically from the edge further in on the table at one point. That's an edit, but it's quite innocently done. They just cut 25 minutes down to a matter of 40 seconds or so. But there was a long period of time during which he did this. And when you see him try it under my conditions, it was a full 45 minutes. They actually let the audience go out to take a lunch break and come back in again during that period. You won't see that cut in the tape. You'll just see sort of a dissolve. But let's go ahead with it. So that was James Randi breaking down what did happen and what is about to happen. So my question to you, gentlemen, and to our listening audience all around the world and to all the ships at sea, who wants to see a psychic master get owned? Well, he's not really a psychic master. He hasn't proven anything. It's just you've got, like, I don't want to say the world's biggest skeptic, but I'm going to use that term. Yeah, James Randi is a skeptic, and he's just going to point out the uh, the, the flaws in uh, the execution. Once again, here is the man who claims to have psychic powers, James Heydrich. <laughs> Welcome back to our stage. You did a most impressive demonstration earlier in our show. If you saw it, I'm sure you were impressed. If you did not, let me explain that James moved a pencil without touching it, and James turned the page of a telephone directory without touching it. And you claim to have done that with psychic power. Yes. Now, you're prepared to demonstrate your psychic powers again. You've warmed up. You're ready to go. Are you, James? Mm -hmm. Very well. Let's welcome back a man who has made a name for himself as a master trickster and the author of Flim Flam, The Amazing Randy. Randy, welcome back. James, Randy. Randy. Now, you saw James' demonstration from backstage. Yes, I did. And do you accept that as a demonstration of psychic power, or do you believe that he used trickery? I don't accept it as a demonstration of psychic power, Bob. I think that the solution is rather simple. I think that Mr. Heydrich is merely, to accomplish this effect, blowing on both the page and on the pencil. I see. Now, you originally asked him to demonstrate in two different ways his psychic power. But as I understand it, you are now prepared to waive the demonstration with the pencil. Yes, and the reason is rather simple because the pencil reacts to even the currents of the air conditioning in this studio. It would be very difficult to try to put controls on it in such a way that normal currents of air that are present all the time would not move the pencil. For example, it moves very, very easily. All right, you're not going to ask him to do that. That's one down, one to go, James. You are prepared to pay him $10,000 if he can turn the page of the telephone directory with certain controls. That's that right. right. Mm -hmm. You have the $10,000, do you, Randy? I do indeed. It's uh, right here. I've carried this check now for going on 17 years, Bob. Uh, there it is, a check for $10,000 awardable to the gentleman should he be able to successfully perform the demonstration. I would like to introduce our panel of judges. And our first judge here, Dr. John Palmer, is a psychologist and professor of parapsychology at John F. Kennedy University. The seat right there, Dr. Palmer. We have Dr. Stephen Drake, astronomer and expert on stellar evolution at UCLA. And our third judge 
is Dr. Ronald Markman, Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at USC. You know what I was hoping we'd see as one of the doctors? Dr. Lee Franz. Brig, again, get out of my mind. I was just going to say those doctors, the way they looked there, if they ever did a reboot of Double Dare around 1981, those are your spoilers. Dr. Lee Franz, that's great. Since my theory, as yet unproven, of course, is that it's accomplished simply by blowing, though rather cleverly, I must admit, done, there should be a way, a simple way, without a lot of instrumentation, to demonstrate that fact by using one very simple control. Now, uh, let me just emphasize that this one control will not stop him from turning the page of the telephone directory, That's right. but you hope to the judge's satisfaction will demonstrate that he is doing it with his breath. That's correct. All right. Now, what I have here is particles of a white plastic, which, when given a good puff, good heavy puff of air, will, I think, rather conclusively show whether or not blowing is a method accomplished. Now, it will not, perhaps, in some way, differentiate between genuine psychic power and actual blowing, but it certainly should be very interesting indeed to see what now occurs. Well, do you maintain that if the page of the telephone direct returns, that we will see movement in the styrofoam as well? I think that it's pretty logical. We've experimented with it, Bob, and that's what we have determined in the experiments. Very well. Are you ready to proceed? I am indeed. Judges, you're ready? James? Ready. That is the face of a man who knows that he is completely and undeniably fucked Fine. he can't do the trick where he just gets up and then runs to the paper because then, next thing you know, his cover's blown. You can't do that. Now he's thinking to himself, how am I going to get out of this? You had another question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is it? What would you like okay. to ask? The styrofoam and the lights form electricity which pulls the page. Look. Pulls the page down instead of freeing the pages. All right, and uh, what would you like to ask us to ask Randy to allow you to do or for me to, to do? To either take something else, either lighter or something that is going to keep, that isn't going to form static electricity. You mean put something else, some other material around something here? Something that is not foam. Foam causes static electricity, and the light is what heats it up. All right, Randy, is there anything else that you can put around the telephone directly? I've heard the question, but the question is not valid because it's making an assumption which is not true. The foam does not in any way create static electricity, and Mr. Heydrich, in demonstrating that the pages were clinging together, didn't demonstrate it to my satisfaction. I think uh, we could perhaps ask the judges for their opinion on that. I am not a scientist, so I'm not qualified to declare on it. Judges? 
whatever static electricity exists in the styrofoam would not really affect the movement of the page or the clinging of the pages together, in my opinion. I would, I would add that if this is, in fact, psychic functioning, I don't really see why that would make a difference. Very well. Randy, would you allow me to turn perhaps half a dozen pages and then put them back? Uh, oh, yes, you may do that, please. Uh, James, I'll just lift up one, two... Lift them in a bunch, if you would, uh, Bob. Just Sweet. take about a quarter of an inch of them. All right, there, Place like them. that. That's fine. Gently. Place them down gently so it doesn't disturb Now he's you. turning into the attorney. I know, uh, well, oh, I thought you oh, the other place, way? Yeah, the other way. That's what I thought you meant. Would that sure. be helpful to you? The static is going to still be here because of the phone. See, that's well, what I'm it saying. is the opinion of the judges that there is not enough static formed by the, the foam to be a problem. So, uh, under the conditions agreed upon, it uh, would seem that now you should at least try with psychic power to turn the page of the telephone directory, James. Okay. Still bound. It's not going to uh, turn. Hell. No, it isn't. Well. Have you reached the point then when uh, at, at which we can declare the demonstration terminated? This isn't a magician's trick. I can't just come up, bang, bang, and it's over. I have to be to where I can work with something small and then big, you know, to build up my own self. So this well, is, you know, the, it isn't uh, a trick. It has to be done, you know, this is just, it's power. It's, it's mental power. The conditions agreed upon have been fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we can't change the conditions now in midstream. So, in the opinion of our judges here, you have not seen a demonstration of psychic power, have you? Yes, that's correct. You have not. And, Randy, uh, obviously, James has not won the $10,000 with this demonstration. So it seems. Now, you have heard what James's explanation is. Do you have any comment to make on that? Bob, the, the comment very briefly is that I have gone through many hundreds of these tests with many hundreds of people who claim to have psychic powers. And quite frankly, it's more or less the same story every time. When a simple, direct, very uncomplicated protocol is used and the control is applied, the psychic forces don't seem to be present, if indeed they are ever present at all. I still look for some sort of evidence of psychic powers. To date, I have not found any. Up to this very moment, I am still totally unconvinced. Judges, do you have any further comment to make? You agree that you have not seen a psychic demonstration? Uh, yes, I, I would agree that I have not seen a psychic demonstration. Uh, I would like to say that as a parapsychologist, I believe that there are uh, other evidence under, under controlled conditions that do uh, demonst demonstrate, I would think, to a reasonable person that psychic phenomena do exist, yes. but uh, obviously not in this, in this uh, demonstration. I want to thank you very much. Thank you so much. You. Ladies and gentlemen, James Heydrich. Before I say goodbye to you, Randy, I do indeed appreciate the fact that you joined us on That's My Line, Dr. Palmer. Thank you. 
Dr. Drake, Dr. Markman, thank you so much. Thank you, Randy. I do want to add a postscript to all this. First, the reason that James Heydrich was on That's My Line to begin with was he actually demonstrated psychic abilities on That's Incredible of all things. And he was unable to replicate that, as we obviously just saw on That's My Line. And he later actually confessed to being fraudulent. I know, shocker. But even more terrifying in 1989 james hydrick was imprisoned for child molestation and currently he is in a psychiatric hospital yes chico that is the correct reaction yeah very creepy but just wanted to give the rest of the story as it were i know i'm not paul harvey but i, I did uh want to add that so yeah, he, he was as fake as a $3 bill, and he's as creepy as creepy can be. As if the mustache didn't give it away. Well, like I said, yes, he can try to move telephone book pages. Yes, he can try to move pencils, but he can't move a razor to shave off that thing on his upper lip. Now, there was a prove out to end this segment. Just before that commercial was an edited version of Randy's challenge. James Heydrich was actually given 30 minutes to demonstrate his psychic powers, and we showed you just the highlights. Randy believes Mr. Heydrich accomplished the feat originally by blowing on the pages, and here's Randy demonstrating that technique. Those were just the many stories covered on this show. Obviously, people watched the first three episodes, otherwise they wouldn't have gone through the trouble of making the rest of the series. I've got ratings if you want to know them. I do want to know them. Now, I don't have ratings for those first three episodes, but I do have ratings for 1981. Specifically, to start the first week of February of 1981, out of 64 shows, it was 38th, so just slightly below the halfway point, beating shows including Bosom Buddies, Barney Miller, Eight is Enough, Buck Rogers, The White Shadow, Charlie's Angels, Benson, Hill Street Blues. Beat a lot of good shows, but you'll see the ratings change not for the better in future weeks. Uh, the following week, it was 45th out of 66 shows. And then move uh, a month further to the week of March 9th to the 15th of 81. Out of 69 shows, get it out of your system. Nice. It was 68th. For the first week of April of 1981, well, technically March 31st to April 5th of 1981, out of 63 shows, it was 61st. And the last set of ratings I have is for a week later, April 6th through the 12th of 1981, out of 64 shows, 61st. So it went from, like I said, right about the middle point. It's still in the lower half, but at the high part of the lower half, 
to basically dead last or almost dead last. Yeah, people weren't buying this for whatever reason. I think actually another comparison we should take a look at is how does it compare to that's incredible and real people? I think that's really the litmus test that tells us how good or bad it was, uh, especially uh, early on. Well, you had that's incredible near the top 20 almost consistently because they put it on Monday nights, beating into Monday night football. Taking a look at the ratings for that uh, week of April 6th to the 12th of uh, 81. I have That's Incredible in a tie for 20th. And Real People was actually at 17th. Another reality show, Those Amazing Animals, came in at 60th, right above That's My Line. And if we take a look at that first week of February I told you about, where it finished 38th out of 64 shows... We have real people, believe it or not, tied for sixth. Dallas one, Dukes of Hazard two, Hooper three, Mash four, 60 minutes fifth, and real people was tied with different strokes for sixth. And then that's incredible was tied for 17th with happy days. And then, like I said, that's my line, 38th, those amazing animals, tied for 44th. I mean, honestly. That's incredible, and real people were much better shows. I used to watch them as a kid. They're just absolutely amazing. And I'm not saying that because one has John Davidson and the other has John Barber, whose son did all the bookings on the New Liars Club. We talked about that last week. Go listen to that. It was a hoot. But also, taking a look at the schedule, maybe that'll paint a little bit of a picture. I've got schedules for the first three episodes and also later in that second season. Originally aired on Saturday night at 8 p.m. And on ABC, it went up against 240 Robert. I'm guessing that might be a cop show of some sort. Uh, it avoided Love Boat and Fantasy Island, which is really good. On NBC, the first hour of a two-hour Buck Rogers. And admittedly, as I said earlier, Buck Rogers ratings weren't that good in 81 it was beaten at least on that first week by that's my line so let's just say it right now bob borker bigger ratings draw in 1981 than aaron gray when it came back for season two it went to tuesday nights and i already know what's coming up on tuesday nights and abc is going to smoke the competition yeah that's my line for the entire hour again 8 to 9 p.m on NBC, you had Sheriff Lobo. I miss Sheriff Lobo. I know you do. But on ABC, I'm sorry, you're not beating Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley, even if for both of those shows, they're two, three years away from being canceled. And just to add more pain, the rest of the night on ABC, Three's Company, Too Close for Comfort, and Heart to Heart. ABC had a killer lineup on Tuesday nights. And then the last thing I have is actually a schedule for April of 1981. I don't have anything after April of 1981. And this is on a Saturday. So maybe it moved back to Saturdays after being trounced by uh, all the shows on ABC on Tuesdays. I have it at 9 o'clock. And both of these are bad. 
but one of them is much worse in 1981 than the other. The not-so-bad one is Hill Street Blues. Actually, there are two episodes of Hill Street Blues on that night. This is the first of them. But on ABC, the first hour of a two-hour love boat. Oh. There's no recovery from that. And the thing is, it's lead-in was not that bad. Well, <laughs> in retrospect, the lead-in was not that bad, at least uh, what started at the 8 p.m. hour. Yeah, WKRP in Cincinnati, so this would have been the second-to-last season of WKRP, and then you had Flow. And Flow wasn't bad. I mean, it's a possible future cover, but still, you had two decent shows that should have gotten respectable ratings in 1981 and then that's my line at nine. Must not have worked because they replaced it with a television version of the 1979 movie Concrete Cowboys. What in God's name is Concrete Cowboys? Your guess is as good as mine. Okay, here it is. Jerry Reed reprising his role as J.D. Reed and Jeffrey Scott taking over Tom Selleck's role as Will Eubanks broadcast on CBS from February 7th to March 22nd and canceled after seven episodes. And all that's left of the show is one full episode on YouTube, bits and pieces of other episodes also on YouTube, but the rest of the series is considered lost. Now, I'm not going to say that. And I'll tell you why. If you remember, oh gosh, this must have been about July, June-ish, when Buzzer first promoted doing a 100th birthday celebration for Bob Barker, they showed clips of That's My Line, implying to me that it might air. Now, it wasn't a lot of footage. It was just a brief commercial but the thing is, when you saw Match Game clips and Tattletales clips and whatever other shows Bob would have done, Family Feud uh, in the 90s, there was a little bit of That's My Line. There's no reason to believe it doesn't exist. It's 1981 and 1980. CBS wouldn't be wiping its properties, and we know how diligent Mark Goodson was at saving his tapes. So they're out there. Maybe it's lost media in the sense that, yeah, they're not out there and easily accessible to us, but they're existing somewhere in Fremantle's vault. And maybe it's one of those things where in about a month or two, we should be coming upon lost and found time on uh, buzzer Maybe they'll pull it out for Lost and Found. So it's not gone. It's just, let's say, in storage. Cold storage. Well, again, you never know when Buzzer may just pull it out of mothballs and just surprise people. Or, you know, I'm even hoping, even though I think it's really sort of fruitless, that maybe sometime in the next week or so, they pull it out and say, hey, surprise. We've been sitting on this for, you know, 42, 43 years. And for the first time since 1981, here's That's My Line showing a different side of Bob Barker, albeit not really that much of a different side, still hosting and 
you know, still doing what he does best, but just in a reality setting versus a game setting. But this show would not be without a legacy. As we mentioned earlier, Kerry Millerick, producer and one of the uh, field agents of the show, would go on to be a similar role in the 82-83 season of Real People. And of course, he would also continue his producing and his writing. Susan Childs and T.U. Leak would continue being cast as that newscaster from that thing. Some of T.U.'s credits include Airheads, Honeymoon in Vegas, and NYPD Blue, and Future Entry Team Knight Rider. And some of Susan Childs's credits include Favorite Son and Remington Steel. Did you mention that T.U. Leak was a guest on To Tell the Truth in 1980? This is news to me. We covered uh, To Tell the Truth in 1980, and T.U. Leak was at least on one week of episodes. I don't remember if it was promoting That's My Line, but it would make perfectly good sense because To Tell the Truth in 1980 would have been 80-81, and when did this run? Started in August of 1980, and ran through uh, 1981. Everybody came out of this show unscathed, and from 1980 to 1981, it wanted to be the next That's Incredible. But sadly, it just became another thing on TV. Speaking of fine Mark Goodson Productions... I think I know what time it is. It's time for This Weekend Match Game, Hollywood Square, Our History. This week, we're up to week seven of Match Game Hollywood Squares. Forty years ago, week seven aired, December 12th to the 16th of 1983. Oh, coincidentally, December 12th, that Monday would have been Bob Barker's 60th birthday, doing simple math. And, oh, Greg, I have great news for you. Johnny Olsen fills in this week as an announcer. Yeah, that's right. I substituted this week. Johnny, just please. It's not Greg. I said Greg. I didn't say Johnny. Jeez. Johnny, get off the stage, please. Go back into the corner, you old poop ghost. So this week, oh, we have a great lineup. Bill Rafferty. Speaking of real people, since we've been talking about real people uh, being one of those uh, newcomers to sort of challenge the That's Incredible Throne. And yet Kim Miori from St. Elsewhere. Willie Tyler and Lester. Oh, who doesn't love Willie Tyler and Lester? Marsha Wallace, Bruce Baum, Alfie Wise... Vicky McCarty and oh Stan Freeberg, how about that Stan Freeberg? Legend Stan Freeberg, a very legendary satirist, absolutely. And we talked about him on the Weird Al show, which, by the way, as uh, you're hearing this, it's airing on Shout TV's channel. They're doing another day of just Weird Al back to back to back to back to back. So you can catch some Stan Freeberg there. We did have a. Champion retire undefeated this week. Diane Hydorn 
retired on the Friday episode with $56,700. So that would be the second highest money winner next to our beloved Magnificent Beard Guy. Other than that, that's all we got. We got uh, Bill Rafferty. We got Stan Freeberg. We got Willie Tyler and Lester. And we had an undefeated champion. And we got Johnny Olson. Back to you, Chico, to wrap up the episode. And that is going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can always go to our website over at itwasathingontv.com. You can listen to the episodes that preceded this one. And we're talking about all 434 of them. We've got all sorts of bonuses, mini-shows, live shows, extended versions, instant reactions. We're also on all social media at It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we're at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. And if you're on Mastodon, remember to search It Was A Thing On TV at tvwatch.party. And also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed, either at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeart, Audible, And if you're on YouTube, we're there too. Like our channel, subscribe, hit the notification bell so you can stay up to date on all of our future entries, including something that we are coinciding with an upcoming theatrical release. Oh, that's right, Chico. Coming up this weekend, we got Momoa of this man. You really went there, didn't you? He took my line from last week. Greg, thief. All right. You might as well accuse me of plagiarism since each bomber guy is doing that on YouTube this week. No, wait. Hold on a second. I'm just noticing this for the first time. Are you wearing a Bowman t-shirt? Yes. Oh, that is cool. Old school Bowman logo from the 80s and early 90s. That's great. Okay, but again, we're taking away from what's coming up on the next episode. I'm just making an observation. But yeah, we mentioned last week that we're going to do two episodes uh, about a certain theatrical release that's coming up in the very near future. I think you guys know what we're talking about. And what we're going to talk about is a pilot. Greg's seen it. I haven't. Chico hasn't. So... Who knows what we're going to get into? It's a pilot, so gosh knows it probably won't be all that good. But at least we're going to be talking about someone as equally as dreamy as Jason Momoa. (laughs) You know what? Not inaccurate. Of course, that is next time right here on It Was a Thing on TV. That's Greg. That's Mike. I'm Chico. We're podcasters. That's our line. Roar us out, Greg! Wow! And now, for your halftime entertainment, please welcome the incomparable, the beautiful, the amazingly Randy. Uh, dude, your dad's here. Thank you! Hey! You know, we live in a world of brutality and violence. And some people think there's no room for wonder anymore. Well, just for a moment, I want you to think one thing. Whatever you believe is real is real.
at least Randy did more tricks than that fucking fraud Yuri Geller <laughs> with his cock magic. And 